Let's uh, go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for giving it to us uh, and making us your people and bringing us together as a church family this morning. Uh, Lord, this morning as we come to your word, we pray that as we study the life of our father Abraham, we would learn something of faith and something of what kind of faithful God you are to us uh, who are so undeserving. Lord, show us what faith in Christ looks like. Show us Jesus in this passage this morning. For this, we need your grace, and as always, we need your spirit. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Throughout American military history, the Army Rangers have been there in some of the most dramatic and most heroic combat events, Uh, scaling the cliffs at Normandy on D-Day, climbing uh, up the cliffs right in the face of enemy fire. It's no surprise that Rangers continue to play a part in the dramatic rescues of captured Americans uh, in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And when you're fighting in the heat of battle, it's important to know that your comrades are going to look out uh, for you, uh, no matter what happens, whether it's rescuing a downed pilot, a captured soldier, a wounded buddy, or our troops who are caught behind enemy lines. Just a few examples of the commitment that's expressed in the Ranger Creed, a commitment that's echoed in all the other branches of the military as well. And one part of the Ranger Creed says this, I shall never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. And uh, if you've read any of the accounts of a recent Uh, Medal of Honor uh, recipients. Um, uh, Both of them were involved, uh, received the Medal of Honor for uh, going after and recovering some of their comrades. So fighting for the fallen and going after the captured is a significant uh, value for the Army particularly for the rangers. But as I was thinking about that, I wonder, how do we operate as God's army? We're uh, called soldiers, be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And if his army is his church, and if you belong to Jesus, you're part of it. And on any given day, there's a fellow soldier around us who's been wounded or who's been captured by the enemy. And are we ready to say as the church, I shall never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy? We get a powerful picture of that this morning. In Genesis 14, with a picture of this loyal commitment to one another. In our passage, Abraham's uh, nephew, Lot, is living in the city of Sodom when a multinational force attacks. And Genesis 14, beginning with verse 11, tells us, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then jumping to verse 14, we read, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan's a city in northern uh, Israel. Abram and company engaged the enemy, and then 
The Bible tells us, verse 16, he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and all the women and the people. Abram dropped everything. He risked everything to rescue a loved one who'd fallen into the hands of the enemy. And that's an example for all of us. You may very well know someone right now who's spiritually wounded, who is going through a deep valley today. That's where Proverbs 17, 17 kicks in. A friend loves at all time, and a brother is born for adversity. In other words, when everyone else is walking out, we should be walking in. And you may know someone who's really messed up, who's totally blown it, who's wandered away spiritually, maybe someone who uh, other believers are ignoring or marginalizing or even condemning. Don't be one of them. If you have a friend in that situation, they have never needed you more. And you need to go to them, however awkward, however difficult it may be. You need to show them the unconditional love of Christ. Last week, I told you that if your last great day with God was spent with a Christian friend who spoke the truth into your life, that you should track them down and call them up, go back to them, sit across the table from them, and ask them to bring you back to the place where you originally were, from which you've strayed, to start from that place where you were supposed to start in the first place. And this week, I'm telling you that if you're that Christian friend, don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them, track them down, call them up, uh, go to them, and then speak the truth into their life. And as God gives you opportunity, remind them of how good it is when they're close to Jesus. Because right now they know how lousy it is to be away from him. And remind them that the issue is Jesus not other Christians who may have hurt them, not the church which might have let them down. It's all about Jesus, and he's all about bringing them back and forgiving them and restoring them. And God's instruction to his army is this, Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if you look around the battlefield, you'll probably see a comrade, a buddy, maybe even a family member, who most people think of as the problem child, or the problem person, or the prodigal. But Jesus sees a wounded soul, and I pray that you and I will see a fallen comrade, and we shall never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of our enemy. That's the scene for Genesis 14. There's all sorts of problems in the world. There's conflict all around. And Abram has a number of decisions to make. And the first decision involves the capture of his nephew Lot. So let's turn to the text and see what's going on. Because Genesis 14 opens with a lesson about conflict and control. Conflict and control. What we've learned so far with uh, Abram is he got off to a good start. He was obeying God. He left his family, his friends, his homeland. He went to, to uh, uh, on his way trying to obey God. And then he hit a bump in the road. And he came to a place of famine. And he went to Egypt, a place where God had not told him to go. He was supposed to be going where God told him to go. 
But he went to this other place that God hadn't told him about. And when he was there in Egypt, he became cowardly. He devised a plan to give away his wife to save himself. God had promised him a land. God had promised him a lineage. And he nearly lost his wife. He gave her away. and God brought her back. He nearly gave away the land of promise to his nephew Lot, but God uh, preserved that decision and enabled him to have the land of promise. And though nearly giving away his wife and giving away his land, Abram ends up coming back to worship and to love God and walk with God, and his faith grew. And what we're seeing with Abram is his faith isn't perfect, but the object of his faith is. And that's where we get our hope. Abram's faith is imperfect, but God, who's the object of his faith, is perfect. So God continually saves Abram from himself and straightens out the messes that he makes. And through that, Abram learns to trust God more and more, and we're not entirely unlike him. We sin, we make mistakes, we fail, we distrust and mistrust God, and God proves himself to be faithful so that our faith is made more secure in him. And so what we've come to today is a passage where Abram has two interesting experiences. One, he goes into a great war, and then coming out of the war, he meets a great man. So you pick up the story there, Genesis 14, begins the first account of any war in the Bible. There's going to be a number of firsts today uh, in Genesis 14. This is the first account of warfare. I'm sure there had been other wars previous to this, but the Bible makes note of this particular one because it's explicitly related to this man Abram. And in this passage, for the first time, God's plan of redemption for his people, and specifically his promises to Abram, intersect with the secular, uh, the national, or maybe better, the tribal military history. We'll see this many times uh, in the later history of Israel, where Israel's military conquests are blended uh, in with challenges to Israel's faith. In some cases, Israel's told uh, not to ally with certain nations around her, and it's a test of her faith and her trust in the Lord. But this is the first time in the Bible that we see this. And in fact, this is the first time in the Bible we're told about military conflict in the context of the Middle East. It will be many, many centuries before we're done with this story of conflict between kings. And in this case, kings from Mesopotamia are going into the land of Canaan. They're battling and they're trying to get natural resources and human resources for their own power and their own wealth, their own ego, their own reputation. And in this passage, the battle itself is really just a backdrop for a more important spiritual battle that's going on in the heart of Abram. So as we look at this passage, remember, everything's leading up to this spiritual battle that's going to go on in Abram's heart at the end of the passage. Now let's put up the map. We have a map. So go back to the map. There we go. I don't know how well you can see that, but that's essentially uh, all of Israel. And from the Sea of Galilee up here, over to the right side, the eastern half, this would be called, this area, the Transjordan. Up here, Damascus is Syria. This is the, what's called the Negev, and then the Sinai is all down here. And uh, so that sort of lays out 
uh, the terrain. And as uh, this is a military passage, knowing the terrain is very important. If you remember from last week, due to Abram's generosity, his parting with Lot had been peaceful. With Lot's departure, a temporary calm comes into their life. And Abram settles at Hebron, which is right here, about in the middle, on the western side, or to the left of the Dead Sea, which is right here. Lot settles in Sodom, which is approximately in this area. Um, and so he's on the eastern side, or the right side, of the map. And uh, this side is Israel, promised land. This side is not Israel, not promised land. And so Lot pitches his tents, uh, we're initially told, near Sodom, but now we're told he's living in Sodom and he's pursuing his prosperity. Now I imagine Lot didn't know how bad this place was when he made his move there, but the reality is Sodom is part of uh, what archaeologists would call a pentapolis, a group of five cities, each with a petty king. And you see those all right in this area, right here. There's... uh, five small uh, cities there, and they've been paying tribute for 12 years to a collection of what we're told is four kings from the east. Now, these just aren't the kings next door. These kings are off the map. Turkey, Iraq, Iran, as we would call those uh, places today. And so they've been paying tribute to kings of big territories, big countries. These, these kings essentially have city-states, little kings, lesser kings, smaller places. <coughs> so what happens here in the text is the five Dead Sea uh, kings, because they're right next to the Dead Sea, they rebel, and they provoke an invasion by the eastern kings. And That's all those hard-to-pronounce names in the first half of Genesis 14. So the eastern kings come to set them straight. And uh, it's an international, a multinational force. It's led by Keterleomer. You just have to learn that one. He's the big king. He's actually from modern Iran. So he's coming from way over here. And... uh, and the other kings are from what we would call a modern Iraq and Turkey today. And their plan is twofold. First, they're going to subdue the Transjordan. That's all this area right here from the Sea of Galilee all the way down. And, uh, and then they're going to go after the five kings once they get sort of the surrounding area. So Keterleomer leads uh, his uh, cohorts, these other kings and their armies, to this sweeping victory in accomplishing the first objective. The invasion route's the same one taken by Abram, who, remember, started way over here, and uh, what we know of as Iraq, and he came down this way and uh, eventually got down to here where they divided uh, the land. And... Uh, So they come down the same way. Campaign goes as planned. First tribe to fall is up here, Rephaim. And so the Rephaites, uh, like the 
Anakim are famous for their height, their size. This is a tribe of really big people. And uh, we're told that actually in Deuteronomy chapter 2. So that's the first stroke in intimidating your opponents. You know, the first ones they conquer are the giants of the Transjordan. And so uh, Keterleomer and his hordes subdue everything in this area. They conquer all of the Transjordan, and they bypass these five kings. They're kind of letting them know, you guys aren't all that important. So they don't even take them on. They take on all of this area, and then they take on all of the Sinai, and then all of the Negev. And uh, so you can see they've surrounded them. They've taken all the land around there. And uh, so what does that mean? They come down here. This is a strategic town right here, Kadesh Barnea. That's an oasis. And so they come all the way down. They conquer all this. They encircle the five small kings. And they come up here to Hazanon Tamer. They defeat the Amalekites and the Amorites. And they end up at the Valley of Sedim, which is right there. And uh, they basically have these five lesser kings at their mercy. They've captured all the territory around them. They've even captured, you know, the big tribes uh, to the west, the Amalekites and the Amorites. So no, they can't summon anyone to come help them because they're surrounded. The Transjordan is so crippled that when the coalition nations will return uh, to the, their eastern kingdoms, nobody's going to have the capacity to attack them. On top of all that, not only do they win the tactical uh, battle, tactical is battle, strategic is war, they, they basically get their strategic objective, which is they now dominate this whole area. For the Middle East, this is crucial because your big areas are the Nile of Egypt, Euphrates of Iraq, and if you're going to go from one to the other, because there's all this desert here you don't want to go through, you have to go around. This is a great highway through here. And all these towns are along these mountains because they oversee the great highway. So that's all of what you have and all those hard-to-pronounce names and hard-to-pronounce places. It's setting the stage uh, for where we are. You have the armies here. These guys are surrounded. These four eastern kings have just dominated uh, the arena, so to speak. So we'll pick up the story in verse 8 because I'm chicken to try to get all those other names. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, uh, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out. Those are the five lesser kings. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Those are the four greater kings. Four kings against five. But what you don't really get from the text is four big kings, big countries, big armies against five little kings, little cities, little armies. Now, the Valley of Sidim is full of bitumen pits. Those are tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So they're right here. 
doesn't say hill country most likely is on this side, not these hills. And uh, it says, verse 11, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. So we, we've got the five lesser kings surrounded, the rebellious five, the Dead Sea kings, and now they just sort of like pluck them like fruit on a tree. They decide to come out to the valley of Sidim. They're going to attack him there. They're right next to their territory. And uh, it's pretty much over before it starts. They're no match for the experienced troops of Keterleomer. Uh There's uh, tar pits. Uh, in fact, the Jewish historian Josephus called the Dead Sea the Asphalt Sea. And asphalt still oozes in a heavy liquid form in the southernmost part of the sea where the five towns lay. It's called the Dead Sea because it has no outlet. Things go in, nothing goes out. So everything goes there and dies. And uh, we're told that many of the defenders meet this horrific death in the tar pits in the Valley of Sidim, falling headlong into this black ooze. Uh, John Calvin says that he thinks some of the, the men on the losing side chose it rather than to be captured and forced into slavery or captured and executed. So they threw themselves into the tar pits. It wasn't a good day. And Lot, this is sort of a painful irony. Remember, he has greedily chosen the best part of the land, and this choice has proven to be disastrous. Everything he possessed, Lot himself is carried off to who knows where. Turkey, you have to read between the lines. Lot has seen all the terrible things that accompany warfare in the ancient Near East. Uh, deaths and rapes, the traditional wake of ancient victory. Perhaps he lost children and loved ones. Perhaps his daughter was now the prize of some Hittite. And uh, he's trudging across uh, the land uh, towards Canaan's borders and all his hopes are dead and gone. Now Moses has already indicated to us that Lot's fallen in to a bad place, bad people, uh, and what happens? He gets captured and carried away. And the Lord is showing in his unfolding providence that Lot has made an unwise decision to dwell in the midst of the valley of wickedness in the city of Sodom. But I think we also need to see the main point of the passage so far, the first 12 verses, the first half of the chapter, is to set up the story of Abram, which is coming. The point of the passage is to show that Abram will choose God to be his reward and choose God to be his rewarder. And everything going on here is leading up, simply setting the table for Abram. But I want you to see how God himself is directing the course of history for the benefit of his people. God's already revealed to us Abram's actions in Genesis 12 and 13, and frankly, we came away a little disappointed. But here, God in his goodness unfolds a scenario where he's going to build Abram up in our eyes and in the eyes of the people with whom Abram lives. So watch God conduct history. That's what's happening here in this chapter. These kings from Mesopotamia and, and elsewhere, they don't have the slightest idea that they're pawns in the hand of God simply to build up his faithful servants. But that's what they are. 
See, for the people in the time of Lot and Abram, the big thing here would have been the impact of the invasion. The, the big thing is the military action. The big thing is the conflict between these kings, the rebellion of the five lesser kings and the retribution by the five greater kings. But the big picture for God is the faith of his faithful servant, Abram. It's important for us to remember because we're placed in just those kinds of contexts today as Christians. As far as the world is concerned, the big things in the newspapers are not the things that you and I do on a daily basis. There are other things, big things in the world's eyes going on in Washington, not in Leesburg, certainly not in the quiet lives of believers. And so we're seeing the Lord set up a course of tribal and national history for the purpose of building up his servant Abram. So now our attention is uh, more carefully focused on the person of Abram. We pick up the story in verse 13, and we're going to look at Abram's character and caution. His character and caution. Those who escape from this battle here in the Valley of Sudim, and it says they flee to the hills, and they're going to go to see Abram, who lives here in Hebron, right there. Perhaps it was after nightfall, one stumbles into Abram's camp. He's only about 20 miles away. We pick up the text, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So here, now Abram is magnificent. Uh, Dr. Ian Duguid sees this event as sort of an epiphany. He said, the veil is lifted. We see Abram in his true colors. He's acting as the king of the land. Uh, it's his by right. It will be inherited by his offspring. It's, uh, he calls it his Abram's Mount of Transfiguration, where his glory is clearly revealed. But if you think about it, Abram could have easily elected to do nothing. I mean, Lot had made his choice. He cared for no one but himself. He'd pitched his tent near Sodom, then moved into town. Besides, wisdom is the better part of valor. People get hurt if I get involved. And what if something happens to me? I mean, Abram's the one indispensable man. But Abram chooses to take action. He's the original brave heart. You know, he's the real thing. He led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit. Well, if you think about it, who is he pursuing? Four big kings, big countries, big armies, 318 men. Sounds like a ranger company. And the Hebrew here is pretty dynamic. He led forth 318 of them. Literally, it says he drew out 318 men, as you would draw out a sword from his sheath. So he has these 318 loyal men, and they're his sword that's unsheathed and ready for war. And out come the quivers and the bows, and the swords are sharpened to a razor's edge. Spears are thrust into the sky. I'm sure Abram trembled 
uh, like every man who has ever mounted for battle, but there's no way he would turn back. Abram the shepherd, Abram the wanderer, Abram the man of peace is now Captain Abram. And amidst the war cries, Abram and his valiant men are off in a cloud of dust on the trail of the kings of the east. And 120 miles later, they go from here to Dan, all the way up here at the northernmost part of the promised land. And they pursue him all the way up there and they catch the four kings. Now the enemy is apparently unaware that they're coming. They think they have no reason to worry. Everybody has been dealt with. They're sleeping well around their campfires. But then swords ring in the night and the combination of Abram's well-planned attack and the element of surprise rout these evil armies from the east. The pursuit bears them well out of the promised land, up past Damascus, uh, we're told. It's an incredible feat. And Moses wants the people who are reading this to marvel. Remember, the people who are reading this for the first time, who are hearing this the first time, are in the wilderness. It's after the Exodus. And so he carefully chronicles this brilliant campaign of the kings of the east. They're flattening the giants of the Transjordan, the peoples of the mountain and the desert. But now we see Braveheart and his victory, and we wonder, how has Abram done this? He defeats these four big armies with a ranger company. Where did this courage come from? And what I think Moses wants you to get is Abram's faith. He believed God's word that the land would go to his descendants. And he knew God was with him. Even if he met defeat, somehow God would still keep his promise. Whereas in Egypt, he had uh, fallen to distrust. He's now living in profound trust as king of the land. And I think we see Christ in this man. Now you think about it as they're coming back. They have to go back to Hebron. They go back down through Damascus, through down, Dan, all the way down here, uh, back to Hebron. This is Salem, which would be later Jerusalem. And so they go down there. And I imagine it was an intoxicating return trip. Cheers ringing out from all the valiant men and the rescued captives. Abram's name would become commonplace from the Euphrates to the Nile. He's an authentic hero. But here comes the test. And it's the test of success. So often, uh, those who've been stellar when facing adversity are derailed by success. Their behavior changes in order to take advantage of their fame. Faith in God becomes faith in self. They begin to believe all their good press. And so weakened, they succumb to temptation, which they would have easily resisted before. And so we have to ask the question, how is Abram going to fare with this? And I think it reminds us that this part of the story is true, but it reminds us it may be easier to act heroically in a physical military struggle than it is to act bravely when our faith is challenged. Abram's faith is challenged uh, in Genesis 12. He failed. But when Abram's called on to bear arms, he's ready to go. I think that's actually a warning to us. There are some external things that it's much easier to be brave 
than it is to be brave in those interior things, things of the Lord. You know, as I look at an older generation of men who went off to the Second World War and conquered the world, you can't help but stand in awe of what they did, of what the greatest generation accomplished. But you have to look at that same generation of men who fought that war, held back the forces of evil, and if you see them operating in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, in historic denominations which had once heralded the gospel, they lost the spiritual battle. All those historic denominations which had once been biblically faithful radically drifted from the truth. That generation won the war but lost the church. And now there's a remnant of men from that same generation who risked the loss of friendship, the loss of family for the sake of holding up the gospel, and they kept the gospel alive many times, just as in our own Presbyterian history, having to create new churches, new denominations in order to remain faithful to the gospel. And I think I probably admire those who fought for the church and for the gospel just as much as I admire uh, their heroism in battle in World War II. Because this battle cost them things like their reputations and their friendships, not to mention buildings, money, pensions. They were mocked and ridiculed for their faith, and yet they persevered because they believed the gospel. They were ready to endure the shame and to try their best to transmit the gospel to another generation, even though it cost them. And I don't think we can ever fail to admire what they've entrusted to us. We wouldn't have the gospel today if it were not for that remnant of that generation of men. That's the test facing Abram. Would his success in battle translate to success in spiritual matters? He's now confronted with the choice, the choices of rewards and righteousness. Rewards and righteousness. Look at verse 17. We're going to go a little over today, so just bear with me. It says, After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. That's right about where Bethlehem is, south of Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed them and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So the setting is the Valley of Shiva, the King's Valley, just south of Jerusalem near Bethlehem. And there these two kings greet Abram, his warriors, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And there are study in contrasts. The king of Sodom views Abram's uh, victory as a human feat. The king of Salem sees it as divine. King of Sodom makes a business-like offer to Abram, but the king of Salem pronounces a blessing and accepts a tribute. Now, the king of Salem is none other than this mysterious Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem, uh, both uh, 
uh, rabbinic commentary and biblical commentary uh, confirm that Salem is Jerusalem. We see that in Psalm 76. He's the king of what would become the holy city. And even the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. His name stresses his righteous character. And in addition to his royalty and his righteousness, we're told he's a priest of the Most High God. So we have the union of priest and king in Jerusalem. And that's going to move David, who was the first great Israelite king and priest, because he had priestly functions, to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, and he would write about a greater Melchizedek to come in Psalm 110. That's all explained in Hebrews 7. We learn that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. So what does this God-fearing priest king do? Well, he refreshes Abram, verse 18. He brings out bread and wine, expresses his goodwill, generosity. Bread and wine is royal fare. If they weren't royal, it would have been bread and water. Uh, he lays out this, essentially a uh, banquet for the returning conquerors in the Valley of the Kings. And while his hands are full of gifts, gifts his lips are full of blessing. Verse 19, he blessed them and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And that looks back to Genesis 12, when uh, God promised Abram he would be a blessing. All the families of the earth would be blessed by him. So we have the initial fulfillment of the promise. And it suggests that Melchizedek himself is going to be blessed. And this is in stark contrast to the king of Sodom, who stands outside the blessing. And Melchizedek's uh, identification of God Most High as possessor of heaven and earth grounds the blessing and the ultimate power in the universe. And he also blesses God. Verse 20, blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek understands what was lost on the king of Sodom, that the source of Abram's victories is God. And so his doxology, his blessing, not only goes outward but upward. And this mysterious priest-king is himself a man of faith. And he lives under God's blessing. And Abram recognizes all this. And uh, so, verse 20, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He validated Melchizedek's priesthood with his tithe. And this is the first use of the tithe in the Bible. So seeing this exchange, the king of Sodom then shows up, verse 21, and offers him his own deal. Give me the persons. Remember, Abram's rescued all these people, all these possessions taken into captivity. He says, give me the persons, but you can take all the stuff. You can take the goods for yourself. So Sodom's really giving him nothing, whereas Melchizedek laid out a banquet. Melchizedek blesses Abram. Sodom offers him a crude deal that you could summarize in four words. Give people, take property. And as the rescuer, technically Abram's entitled to all of it. So Sodom's deal is really an ungracious, self-serving demand. But observe Abram's response. He, he gives an oath in verse uh, 22. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. God most high, first time that phrase is used. Uh, Melchizedek is introduced as a priest. First time we get a priest. And Abram is declaring his dependence on God. He knew the name of God. He lifts it up. He believes God's word with all his heart. He had risked everything because of his trust in God. He's At this moment, he's a victorious king. And so he has this great statement of faith, which is also an argument against the king of Sodom 
and all those who trust in the things of the world. And here we see Abram again in this stunning nobility. He's writing this ascended faith. We'll take him all the way into the next chapter where it will say he believed the Lord and he counted it uh, to him as righteousness. Abram trusts God's word implicitly. That's the great continental divide in our lives. Do we really trust God's word? Because distrust will implode us and shrink us, compact us, reduce us, uh, hermetically seal us in the smallest of containers ourselves. But if we truly believe God's word, that will enlarge our souls, not just in generosity, not just in opening our hands, but moving us to sacrifice for others, to be like Jesus. That's the primary point of Genesis 14. Simply put, it all points forward. Even if you just stop and look at the first half, this brave heart, this great heart, at that moment is like Jesus. As Abram was to Lot, so Christ is to us. Jesus didn't sit idly by in heaven waiting for us to deserve redemption. Neither is our redemption painless. Christ left the glories of heaven to come after us, just as Abram went after Lot. Secondly, we get to meet Melchizedek. Melchizedek just sort of shows up out of nowhere. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. It sounds like they're going to have communion. He's not only a king, he's also a priest. Do we have priests yet in the Bible? Nope. Do we have communion yet in the Bible? Nope. Jesus hasn't died yet. We don't have communion yet. We haven't even set up the Passover feast yet, which is the precursor to communion. That doesn't happen until later in Exodus. First priest uh, begins from the line of uh, Levi through Aaron. Aaron's the first priest. Priesthood comes to him. Aaron hasn't been born yet. He doesn't show up till the next book. So all of a sudden, we have Jerusalem out of nowhere. We got a king out of nowhere. We got a priest out of nowhere. We don't even have priests yet, and they're going to have communion, and we don't have Passover or communion yet. This guy's got a curious resume. Sounds like this other guy we know. He's a priest and king who's all about communion and works for the Most High God and rules from Jerusalem. Does that sound like anybody you know? Yes, it does. His name is Jesus. And Hebrews 7 makes the explicit comparison of Melchizedek to Jesus. Melchizedek only shows up three places in the Bible. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and Hebrews 7. That's all you get. In Hebrews 7 is a long chapter. I'm just going to pick out some selected uh, verses there, starting at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's how we know what Melchizedek means. He's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. Salem means peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. We jump to verse 15. This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, not descended from Aaron, but by the power of an indestructible life. Love that phrase. 
by the power of an indestructible life. You know who they're talking about. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Go on down, verse 21, Hebrews 7. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And it goes through there, I have the text in your outline. And it says it ends with appoints his son who's been made perfect forever. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us in Hebrews 7 is when you think of Melchizedek, you need to go to Jesus. Whenever you see or hear of Melchizedek, you're supposed to go to Jesus. And what he said is that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was like this. There's a priest. The priest is someone who intercedes before God on behalf of the people. The people would bring him an animal. They'd hand it to the priest. The priest would slaughter the animal, showing that the wages of sin is death. And because of sin, we die. And unless there's penalty and punishment and payment for sin, we're all dead in our sin and without hope. So the priests have this bloody, gory job, blood's flowing out the back of the temple, and all of that is pointing to Jesus. And Jesus, he says, is now our priest. He is God who became a man to identify himself with us, to mediate between uh, man and God, to restore the covenant relationship between us and our maker. So Jesus is our priest. Not only that, he's our high priest. He's the, the priest of priests. In addition to that, it says here, he's our sacrifice. He lived without sin. Everyone else sinned. We can have our sins forgiven, but we're not perfect, and Jesus is. And he gives us his perfection, and he takes our sin, and he's the priest who offers the sacrifice, and he's the lamb whose life is laid down. So Jesus offers the sacrifice and is the sacrifice. That's why when his cousin John the Baptist saw him at the beginning of John 1, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he's talking about. And what he's saying here is Melchizedek comes out of nowhere and he's supposed to point us to Jesus. But just like Melchizedek was a king, Jesus is a king. He's the king of kings. And just as Melchizedek was a priest, Jesus is the priest of priests. And it's the priest's job to deal with sin. So Jesus Christ dealt with sin by being the priest who interceded for us and by being the sacrifice who died for us. Not only that, three days later, he rose again from the dead. It says he lives forevermore. He conquered Satan, sin, and death. And Jesus is alive and well today as our high priest and our king of kings. And so in Jesus... We have a priest who deals with our sin, a living king who's conquered death that's available to govern our lives and to lead us into all the purposes of God. And what he's saying here is when you see Melchizedek as priest and king, all of that should take you to Jesus because that's who we need. So here's Abraham after a great battle, and he's got Jesus on the horizon his faith is in Jesus, his hope is in Jesus, his trust is in Jesus, that his barren wife would have a son, and through that son, generations of sons would be born, and eventually there would come another son, the Lord Jesus, that according to Matthew 1 would be a descendant of Abraham, and as such he would be a priest who would intercede, a sacrifice who would die, and a king who would rise to rule and reign over all the nations of the earth. Abram's faith is in this coming priest and king. 
who we know of as Jesus. And all that is shown in his relationship with this amazing man, Melchizedek. And again, the point I made at the beginning, and probably making every sermon till I die, I hope, everything in this book is about Jesus. In one way or another, it's all about Jesus. It all goes to Jesus. It foreshadows, points to, and is fulfilled in Jesus. So Melchizedek walks out as king and priest and points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Abraham responds with worship, giving a tithe, honoring God, thanking God, realizing that every good thing in his life is from the hand of God. And are you any different than Abraham? Are you any different than Abraham? Think about that. You need to pray. It's the same concern for your glory, the same trust in your reward that your faithful servant Abram had. Lord, may we offer gifts and sacrifices to the one who's the king of righteousness and the true king of peace. Move us to respond with worship this day and every day. For we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.